Right. Thank you very much, worship team. Thank you so much, Dan. So true. If you would turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. The uh, thing that I want us to think about this morning as we think about thinking is the idea of um, shopping in the marketplace. And the fact that many times we hear the caution to let the buyer beware. And the reality is um, we have marketplaces that are filled with physical goods, but in a sense, the world is a kind of marketplace filled with all kinds of ideas. And we need to beware of the ideas that can shape us in ways that are good and ways that are, are destructive and ways that we can't even imagine. And so when I think about the importance of ideas, I think about the fact that there's a phrase that I've heard a lot over the years, which is ideas have consequences. And uh, this week, Jan was sharing with me a short Instagram video where this uh, mom and dad are uh, trying to get their kids out of the van that they're in. It seems to be late at night. And one of their uh, daughters is in a car seat And she appears to be asleep. But I guess they don't know for sure whether or not she's asleep. And so they'll be in talking in earshot of the little girl saying, you know what, I know what we can do to test her to see if she's really asleep or not. If we hold up her arm and it stays up in the air, then we know she's asleep. If it falls down, then we'll know she's uh, not asleep. And so they talk about this and they go to the little girl and the dad lifts up the little girl's arm and it stays up in the air and the mom and dad just laugh. What were they doing? They were planting an idea in the mind of their little girl and it resulted in a certain consequence or a certain result. What was the result? She embraced that idea and she followed suit because she wanted her parents to think she was asleep. And so ideas have an impact on us. And we can get ideas from all kinds of places. And that's what I mean by the marketplace of ideas. We have to be aware of those kinds of things. R.C. Sproul has a series that uh, he did before he went to glory um, called The Consequence of Ideas as well, where he talks about the history of Western philosophy. And he quotes a very familiar um, phrase that's been talked about by different people. He says, the unexamined life is not worth living. To any serious thinker, and especially to the professing Christian, an, an unexamined life is not an option. Now, what does he mean by an unexamined life? It means a life in which we don't think about our lives, for one thing, and we don't think about the deeper questions of life and about why we live like we do. And so he says, it's foolishness to have an unexamined life. And an unexamined uh, examination, I guess, or thought process with regard to our own thought processes and why we do what we do. Interestingly enough, in light of what's going on in our own country, um, he talks about Hitler and what Hitler did 
in his day and time when he was um, terrorizing his own nation, I guess you could say. He talked about the fact that he didn't simply want to get rid of the Jews or others with disabilities, but that he also sought to eliminate intellectuals whose ideas contradicted their agenda. So not only was it certain kinds of people, uh, certain races or certain disabilities that he was trying to get rid of and trying to form the perfect Aryan race, but he wanted to get rid of certain ideas that would oppose his agenda. And if you're half awake, you know that's what's going on in our country as well. There are those who want to get rid of certain ideas because it opposes their agenda, or they are promoting certain ideas that support their agenda. Our kids, all of our kids, went to a Worldview Academy in the summertime. And Worldview Academy is a Christian camp for a week that talks about your worldview and how you think about things and how you engage your culture. And one of the things that they would encourage the kids to do is to actually go out and do some witnessing and do it in such a way that you'd basically ask people what they think about life, about God, about certain issues. And one of the things that they encouraged the kids to do was, at some point, after they've heard what people think, is to ask the question, what if you're wrong? Obviously, for those who are responding in a way that's not biblical, they ask the question, what if you are wrong? And I thought about that in light of all the various things that are going on in our own society where we say things like a man uh, can be, excuse me, people can be a man in a woman's body or a woman can be a man, uh, can be in a woman's, a woman can be in a man's body, man can be in a woman's body, that kind of thing. And if you have surgery, you can correct that. That's one of the ideas in our day and time. There's the idea that love is love. It doesn't matter who you marry, you know, as long as you love each other, it doesn't matter to some people how many people you marry or how young those people are or anything else. Um, there's the idea that life in the womb is either just a clump of cells or it's only a potential life. It's not really um, something we should be concerned about other than uh, with regard to health care for the life of the mother. Uh, there's the idea that whiteness is inherently wrong or imperceptibly um, destructive, which is simply another form of racism. We thought the same thing about black people, and uh, even when Italians came into the U.S., they were looked at in a certain way. You can apply the same thing to all kinds of races, and people do, and people have. And as a result, the lie is discrimination must be the answer to, to solve that. And so what are we to think about those ideas? There are even the idea that if you have more than I do, you must have stolen it. And therefore, I have the right to take it from you, either through the government's help or through smash and grab. Um, there's the idea that we are just the product of chance, of random processes and evolution. There is no God. There is no right and wrong. There is no life after death. There is no ju judgment. There is no purpose or meaning in life. And obviously there's those who would say there are many ways to God and you're a bigot and you're narrow if you say Jesus is the only way. 
Well, my question in light of all of those ideas that many people embrace and many people are living in light of those ideas, my question is, what if those ideas are wrong? What if you're wrong about abortion? What if you're wrong about um, marriage and the way you look at it? What if you're wrong about the fact that there is no God and there is no judgment to come? What if you're wrong? And so ideas have consequences. And it's interesting to me, in reading through Acts chapter 17, you see a lot of different words and phrases that highlight the idea of thinking and reasoning and the importance of recognizing that right thinking is really, really important. And God calls us to trust him and God calls us to love. And right thinking is crucial to trusting God and loving like God calls us to love. It's the foundation for right belief, which is the foundation for right desires and right actions and words. And so that's the way I want to approach this chapter in light of what we have in this chapter. And so look with me at the first 15 verses, and I want to just kind of break this chapter up into two parts this morning. Uh, The first part is focusing on Paul and Silas's ministry to the Jewish people in the synagogue. The second part is Paul's message to Gentiles, to those in Athens, and it's a message to uh, those who are not uh, Jewish. And we want to see how Paul handles both of these things and how they can encourage us, these stories can encourage us in our own thinking about our own lives. So look at verse 1. It says, Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, excuse me, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. 
Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. The basic point that I want to make from this section is that Paul in his message to the Jews basically says that God, the covenant maker, has fulfilled his promise. He promised the Jews that he would raise up a Messiah from among them and send him to them. And he says, Paul is telling them that God has done the very thing that he promised to do. He is the covenant making God. He's the covenant keeping God. Covenant means promise. He's kept his promise to us as a people. He promised a Jewish Messiah. He has sent him and fulfilled that promise in Jesus. And so Paul and Silas have traveled from Philippi, as we saw in the last chapter, to Thessalonica, about a 70-mile journey. And they come to this town in Thessalonica and they preach this message to the Jews. It says that he reasoned with them in verse 2 from the scriptures. And so what Paul does is he takes what we call special revelation. There's two kinds of revelation. Basically, there's general revelation, like you find in creation. We have special revelation, which is God's word. And Paul comes to the Jewish people who have the word of God, and he reasons with them from the word of God. And he tells them that if you look in the Old Testament, you see that the Messiah had to suffer, Messiah had to die, and the Messiah would rise again. And God has fulfilled that in the person of Jesus. Well, some of the Jews believe, but more of the Gentiles believe. And the Jews who do not believe stir up the city and they end up um, bringing uh, Jason, who evidently hosted Paul and Silas, bringing, and who must have fled at that point. So Jason and some of the others are brought before the authorities and they accuse them of upsetting or overturning the world because they preach another king and want to overthrow Caesar himself. And so they're accusing them of wanting to overthrow everything. Well, there's obviously some truth in that. Uh, The Christians weren't trying to overthrow the government in the sense of its legitimate function. They weren't trying to overthrow Caesar in terms of his legitimate role that God has given to government. But obviously... The gospel and Christianity is seeking to overthrow unbelief, overthrow disobedience to the will of God and those kinds of things. And so uh, Paul and Silas are, are run out of town and they go to Berea, which is another town about 45 miles away, and they preach there. And it says the believers, the Jewish believers there and the uh, Gentiles who are a part of the synagogue there are more noble-minded. And so Paul is reasoning with them from the scriptures, engaging their minds, and they are more noble-minded in that they actually open their Bibles and say, let's see if what this guy is saying is true. Let me really examine the scriptures. And they, many of them come to faith in Christ. The word for examine there is the idea of if you were in a trial and you were listening all to all the evidence that's being given, and then you're coming to a conclusion. You're casting a verdict, and that's what they did. They listened to all the evidence from the scriptures, 
and they came to believe in Christ. And so Paul, first of all, in dealing with the Jews, is arguing from the Bible, from special revelation, reasoning from it. He does something different, at least with um, those in the marketplace in Athens. So let's read the rest of the chapter and see what Paul does here. He, he doesn't abandon the truth, but he does preach it in a different way in light of a different audience. And so in verse 16, it says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by um, human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Arapagite, and a man named Damaris, or excuse me, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So the interesting thing about this is Paul, in dealing with the Jewish people, argues from special revelation because they had the word of God. But here he reasons with those in Athens from general revelation, from creation, from the things that they can see and observe. Athens was considered to be the intellectual capital of the Greek world. It was called learned 
Athens. And so they considered the people there, the philosophers there, to be the smartest people on the planet, so to speak. They considered themselves to be smarter than anybody else. An interesting thing is Paul basically says that you're ignorant. You think you're the smartest people on the planet, but you're actually so very ignorant of what the truth really is. And so he argues with them, but he preaches the truth to them without ever quoting any scripture. He doesn't pull out his Bible and reason from the scripture, but he actually quotes some of their own Greek poets. And he mentions what they say, and he highlights the truth that can be found even among those by common grace who don't even know the Lord. And so he talks about the fact that um, you have this idol and there's a little plaque on that idol that says to an unknown God. Uh, The implication being, you know, maybe there's a God we should be worshiping that we're not worshiping and we don't know his name. We don't know who he is, but we want his blessings and we don't want his curses And so we'll just make an idol to an unknown God. And Paul says, let me tell you about the God you don't know, the true God that you don't know. And he's actually the only God there is. And he created everyone, everyone from one man. And he has ordained where everyone would live and what their um, situation would be, what nation they would be in and all those kinds of things. And he created us to seek him. Not to live in ignorance of him. Not to live like there is no God. Not to just carry on our lives as if my life is my life. Because the reality is, if God has made us, we belong to him. And then I should be very concerned about what he wants from me. And so he talks about the idea of them groping after God like a blind man that's trying to find something. And so basically Paul is arguing your reasoning is like the reasoning of a blind man who's trying to find something that he'll never find because he can't see. What you need is revelation. You need your eyes to be opened by God so that you can see and find God. And that's what the gospel is. It's revelation from God. That's what the word of God is. It's revelation from God that opens the eyes of blind people who think they see when they can't, who think that they're smart when they're not. And so Paul is arguing that I'm here to tell you what you really don't know, even though you think you do. And so it was a a message of grace and mercy and What he does is he ultimately says that whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, God calls everyone to repent, calls everyone to have a change of mind. That's what the word repent is basically to have a change of mind that results in a change of life. You need to have a change of thinking about God, about yourself, about salvation, about how good you are or how you're going to be saved or happy or all those things. You need to have a change of mind. And God is calling you to have a change of mind based on what he's done in Jesus. Because he's raised Jesus from the dead. And one day that man, Jesus, is going to judge every other man. And you need to be ready for that judgment. 
And so the judge is also the savior. And so Paul doesn't, uh, it isn't recorded here all that he said. Luke gives us a summary. But Calvin would say, I'm certain that Paul also told them that Jesus is the savior from the judgment to come as well. He wouldn't have left that out because he's preaching the gospel. But Luke, in his summary, highlights the fact that he's talking to these Gentiles and he's emphasizing to them their accountability to a God that they don't even know, but a God that they need to know. And so the message is um, to the Gentiles can simply be summed up as God the Creator has raised up the man Jesus who will judge all men on a day fixed by God. And his message to everyone is, is that we need to turn from sin and seek God for life through faith in Jesus, who is both Savior and King. What I want to do with the time we have left is help us think a little bit about the kind of thinking we need to be doing in light of what Acts chapter 17 tells us about the importance of reasoning. Reasoning both from special revelation in terms of the scriptures, reasoning from general revelation like creation. And Paul uses both and calls uh, both um, or brings both into his preaching. The first thing that I just want to encourage you to think about is that we need to be people who ask good questions. We need to ask good questions. Um, The reason I say that is there are two groups mentioned that Paul conversed with in Athens, uh, the Stoics and the Epicureans. They were philosophers, and philosophers are all about thinking. Uh, The word means love of wisdom. And so they're always thinking about the big questions. That's one of the the good things about ancient Greece and the uh, philosophies that come out of it is that they do wrestle with the big questions. The problem is they're wrestling like blind men who do not see the truth. But at least they're asking the big questions like, what is the highest good or what is the supreme good that we ought to be pursuing in life? Um, The Stoics, their answer to that was virtue. That the highest good or the supreme good was virtue. Now what they meant by virtue was to live your life according to reason, to be a rational human being, and therefore to be self-sufficient and to do your duty in light of your station in life because they believed that everything was determined. They believed in fate. They believed you could not change anything, so you needed to do the best you could and be the best you could be in light of whatever was determined for you. And so they looked at life in such a way that you might could uh, hear them say something like Wesley when he was Dread Pirate Roberts, when he said, life is pain. And if anybody is telling you something different, they're trying to sell you something. Well, they thought about life as being pain, but they said life is pain, so maximize it. Not meaning increase your pain, but make the most of your pain. Be strong in the face of your pain. Um, Don't give in to it. Don't whine about it. Just buck up and be strong. And 
Obviously, the negative thing about that is that they were often very proud and even very cruel in terms of how they handled people and handled life. Do we have anybody like that today? Well, imagine uh, a boxer in a ring. The boxer in the ring would be more like the Stoic, engaging life, fighting, uh, touting his toughness. The guy on the couch eating chips, watching the fight on TV would be the Epicurean or more like the Epicurean because the Epicurean did not see virtue of any kind as being the highest good. They saw pleasure as being the highest good. But they didn't mean immoral pleasures. They meant the simple pleasures of life and especially pleasure that would deliver them from any physical pain or from any mental, emotional pain like fear or anxiety. So they'd never get into the ring and box somebody. That would be engaging in something that's going to bring about pain. Their view on life was, you know, let's just eat, drink, and hang out with our friends. Um, Is a kind of escapism, trying to escape pain, escape anxiety, and anything that would create fear. So they didn't believe in God. They didn't want any fear of God. They didn't want any fear of death. Of course, the Stoics didn't necessarily believe in God either. Some of them had an idea of God, but at best it was a deist kind of thing. God was off in the distance. But neither one of them uh, thought it was important to live your life in light of God. And so you've got the Epicurean who is basically living according to his feelings. And you've got the Stoic who's living according to his reason. And the Epicurean would be more the softer kind in a negative sense in that they were indifferent to others and very self-centered, even very childish. And so in our day and time, uh, that can be manifested in different ways. It can be manifested in any kind of lifestyle that is just kind of withdrawing from the world and just trying to enjoy things, whether it's just watching TV all day or or playing video games all day or just basically just trying to get through life. It's a kind of escapism. So you've got the activist who's the Stoic. You've got more of the pacifist in various ways who's the Epicurean. And it manifests itself in all kinds of ways. There are those who've challenged these basic ideas even in our day and time. Um, There's... Uh, what they call thought experience, uh, experiments, which are interesting. You can read through some of these online. And there are those who would challenge the determinism of the Stoics uh, through this thought experiment. They would say, what if you had a donkey that was standing between two identical bales of hay? Would that donkey make a choice or just stand there and starve? They're asking that question because the idea of determinism and especially the perspective of the Stoic determinism is that uh, everything's based on rational decision-making. And if someone has two identical decisions or options, they'll be paralyzed and they won't be able to make a decision. So it's a way of saying... um, we don't think the determinism of the Stoic or other kinds of determinism really plays out. There must be some kind of free will 
or whatever involved in the universe. But what would we say as Christians about that? We would say that that's, a, that's too simplistic. The, the whole thought exper- experiment doesn't take into account other things that need to be taken into account. The same kind of thing is done with regard to the idea of the Epicurean view of life. There's another thought experiment uh, that's called the experience machine. And they say, imagine that um, these really smart neuroscientists create a machine that can simulate every kind of pleasurable experience and even give you pleasurable experiences uh, that you can't even have in normal life and more than you could ever have in a lifetime. And the question is, would there be anyone who would refuse to go into that machine if it meant spending the rest of your life there? And some would say, we all just simply live for pleasure, and so everybody would go in. There would be others who would say, no, there's more to life than pleasure. Some people want reality, not dreams. Some people want relationships, not just pleasure. And so it raises the whole question of whether or not uh, pleasure is really the thing that drives everything or not. And the reality is, from a Christian perspective, you could say that thought experiment is also too simplistic. Because what I'm trying to highlight is, one emphasizes the issue of reason. and says reason is at the bottom of everything we do or should do. The other emphasizes feelings or pleasure as, a, as being at the bottom of everything we should think or do. And it leaves out the importance of revelation and how revelation should both inform our reason and drive our feelings. And that's the way God has designed it. And so on a human level, uh, man just thinks in terms of reason or feeling and leaves out revelation, leaves out what God says is the truth. And that's why Paul is doing what he's doing. He's bringing to bear special revelation through the word and general revelation through creation as he talks to both Jews and Gentiles. When we think about the issue of asking good questions, we ought to, all of, us, all of us, ask the question, what do I believe is the supreme good? If I have this, I will have everything I could ever want or need. What is your supreme good? Secondly, what if you don't live in light of that? What will you do with your guilt for failing to pursue the supreme good? How will you handle the guilt? And thirdly, if you really embrace something as a supreme good, what will be your goal in life practically? What will that mean on a practical level to pursue that good? The reality is that's actually faith, hope, and love from the Bible's perspective. Those three things highlight our supreme good what we do with our guilt, and what we practically pursue our goal in life. The only way you come to those conclusions, though, is by settling on your guide. So I'm basically highlighting the fact that you have to answer the question, supreme good, what is that? Um, Guilt, what will I do with that? 
What's my goal practically in life? And then what will I use as my guide to answer those questions? Will it be my own thoughts? Will it be some uh, Greek philosopher from, you know, uh, hundreds of years ago? And for some people it is. Uh, Will it be the very revelation of God? And ultimately, how you answer those three questions about good and guilt and goal in life and the guide you use to answer those questions will determine your true God. That's how you know whether or not you've truly embraced the God revealed in the Bible is in terms of how you answer those questions, those ultimate kinds of questions. And so that's why I say the Greek philosophers were on the right track when they were trying to answer the question of what is the highest good and how should we pursue it, but they got it wrong because they were blind to the truth. And all of us are blind until God opens our eyes to the revelation that's all around us and to the revelation in his word. So the encouragement in light of all this is to be a thinker. Now you might say, well, well, yeah, of course we all think, but that's not what I mean. I don't mean simply recognize that you think. I mean be a thinker. Um, many of you are probably familiar with the fact that the root of the word amusement is ah, which means no or not, and muse, which means think. It means no thinking. We're, we're a society that loves amusement, likes to not think, wants to do things that just turn our brains off. Now, not completely, but can turn our brains off from asking the really important questions about God, our guide, our goal, our guilt, and our good, can turn our brains off there. Now, obviously, relaxing your mind in certain ways is not wrong. But if your whole life is just given to, I just don't want to think about the big issues. I just want to enjoy life. There's a problem there, obviously, because we need to answer the big questions of life. And ultimately, what I think will determine what I believe. What I believe will determine what I desire. And what I desire will determine what I do. It just works that way. That's the way we move out in life. And so, to me, it's always been interesting in Romans 12 that Paul spends 11 chapters talking about the gospel. And then the very first thing he tells Christians to do is to actually do something with their mind. In Romans 12, 1, he says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So Paul could say, what are you supposed to do once you've been saved? You're to give your body to God, and especially your mind. Because it's going to shape what you believe, what you desire, and what you do. And what you ought to want to do is to the will of God. And so to prove the will of God means to actually live it out and show people what the will of God is. And so he tells us that our minds are crucial to that. 
It's also helpful to realize that in various ways, the Bible tells us that our thoughts should rule our emotions. All of us can be overwhelmed with our emotions. All of us can be driven by how we feel and our emotions at a certain time. I was watching a clip of a football game yesterday and the coach on the sideline is just going crazy. He's totally overwhelmed with anger at what's happening on the field. My thought was, he's just lost control. He's just let his emotions run away with him. His thoughts should have controlled his emotions, his emotional response to what was going on. Because it says in John 8, 31, So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Truth is something we have to understand and then believe. And if it's the truth that sets us free, it's meant to set us free from wrong thinking as well as wrong feeling and those things that drive our lives that are not from God. But it's also important to realize that when I say my thinking should rule my emotions, it doesn't mean I should be unemotional. It just means my emotions should be shaped by right thinking and held in check by right thinking. But I also should realize that It's not simply my thoughts, my thoughts that are to rule my emotions. It's God's thoughts that are to rule my emotions in the sense that my thoughts should be ruled by God's thoughts, meaning God's revelation should rule my mind. What God has revealed should be continually uh, shaping what I think. Paul David Tripp, I think at the beginning of his book, on instruments of the Redeemer's hand, talks about the fact that we're all uh, receivers. God created us to be receivers. And therefore, there's a sense in which, I would say, we've never had an original thought. There's a sense in which all of us are simply receiving thoughts from different sources. And there's two fundamental sources from which we receive thoughts. One is revelation from God, The other is lies from the enemy through various means. It's either truth or lies being communicated in various ways. And it's pictured for us in Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden. Uh, Satan says, Yea, hath God said? Well, let me tell you. And so the reality is all of us are being impacted in the marketplace of ideas through truth and lies. And we desperately need to realize that we are receivers. We're we're not the ones creating our own thoughts and our own worldview. We're receiving that worldview by either receiving lies or receiving the truth. And therefore, we have to be careful of what we find in the marketplace of ideas. It says in 1 Timothy 4, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. And so I need to rule my life and my feelings through my thoughts, and my my own thoughts need to be ruled by God's thoughts. And that's why the Bible is so important. Reading your Bible, meditating on the Word, um, evaluating everything you hear, 
uh, through your Spotify playlist in light of scripture. Everything that you see on YouTube or watch in the movie theater, you're evaluating through uh, the lens of the scripture that everything, you don't want an unexamined life, nor do you want an unexamined amusement or uh, workplace or anything else. Everything needs to be examined in light of the word of God. And then ultimately, all of that is meant to lead us to a change of mind. And again, like I said, repentance is the change of mind that God calls us to. In 2 Corinthians 10, Paul says this, verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. Paul says we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We examine everything and we bring it into submission to Christ. We either say that... That is what Christ says. And we say, no, that's not what Christ says. That's either truth or that's lie. And as you listen to music, as you watch movies, as you engage with people and watch things on Instagram or whatever you're doing or just having a conversation over coffee, everything ought to be examined in light of the truth, the revelation of God. Because ideas are important. So very important important and ideas are as plentiful and varied as wares in the marketplace ideas can be a window on the world or a lens that distorts what we see an idea can help us to see god as he truly is or actually distort that vision of god ideas have consequences both positive and negative if you go into a theater and yell fire that can be a positive or negative thing It's a positive thing if there really is a fire. It's a negative thing if there's not, but you can bet there will be a reaction. It has consequences. Ideas should be examined by Scripture. Those who examine dollar bills to make sure they're not counterfeit, compare it to true bills. That's how they're trained. They're trained to know what a true bill looks like so that they can immediately spot a false dollar bill. How well do we know our Bibles? How well do we know the truth? And as we're going through life and we're going through the marketplace of ideas, are we quickly identifying falsehood? Or are we maybe latching on to it, holding on to it, and letting it shape our thinking and our feelings and our actions more than we realize? Ideas should be reasoned from Scripture. We need to reason from the Scriptures. And reflect on creation as well. Ideas that shape our lives ultimately will be judged by Jesus. One day all of us are going to stand before Jesus. All of us will give an account for the life we lived in light of the ideas we embraced. And Paul is saying um, there is forgiveness and that forgiveness is through Jesus but all of us will still give an account for our lives and, and how we've lived those lives, lives and therefore 
Um, what we do with the various ideas in this world is so very, very important. What I've put up here on the screen, and I'll just close with this, is God created us to be holy and happy through trust and love. It's another way of saying God created us to glorify him and enjoy him. And he calls us to trust him, trust his promises, trust his word. And he calls us to love according to his word. And that's how we pursue holiness and happiness. And we find our joy in him. But both trust and love requires right thinking. If we feed our hearts on lies and we embrace lies, we will not trust God. We will not love like we should. And we have to understand that in light of the marketplace of ideas. Because what we purchase in the marketplace of ideas will furnish our man cave, our sewing room, and our backyard garden. And that's just a way of saying it will actually furnish our lives. Our lives will be the fruit of the ideas we embrace. And that life will one day be evaluated by Jesus. And my prayer is that Jesus will say on that day, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And as Christians, we should pray God, help me that I might too hear, well done, now good and faithful servant. And for those who aren't trusting Christ, the good news is you can be delivered from a righteous judgment through a judge who is also a savior, an able and willing savior for sinners, if you'll entrust yourself to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that it would be encouragement to us in light of the society we live in, in which there are so many ideas that are shaping people's lives, that are so destructive in so many ways, and we're exposed to those in so many ways, and we're in danger of embracing them. And we pray that you'd rescue us and that you'd help us to take every thought captive to Christ and to examine it in the light of Scripture, in light of what your word actually says, and help us to hold on to your truth and your promises and your commands and to look to you for the happiness we need, desire, the help we need, and to trust all that you've done for us in Christ. Father, I pray for anyone here who's not yet trusting the Lord Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Please grant them grace to do so. For all of us who are, we pray that you'd help us to be more diligent as we walk through the marketplace of ideas, to be more careful and to seek to one day stand before you and to hear you say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thank you that you are all that we need and you are sufficient for the battle that we face and that we can go forward in peace as we look to you to help us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.